many students don't think as flexibly about numbers as we think they do. So this is a really bad example, but it's the best one I'll come up with for the listener right now. For the number 50, we'd like to think that they can break 50 apart in infinite number of ways. But if you were to poke at it, you're going to find that they really only think about it in four or five ways. And those ways are very limited, such as 25 and 25, 49 and one, et cetera. And I'm talking about whole numbers right now, but it applies to really any type of number. And the point with that routine, broken numbers or express it, we want students to play with, get dirty with numbers and look for patterns on how you break them apart. We know that when you do that, this, there is John Sand. Giovanni, a math supervisor from Baltimore and an author of the book series, Daily Routines to Jumpstart Math Class. In this episode, we chat with John about why your traditional warm-up bell ringer activities need to change, how to build number sense at any grade level and save time doing it, why traditional homework take-up doesn't work, how to avoid creating math sheep, and you'll walk away with five specific routine activities to jumpstart your day. But before we get to all of that, let's cue up the music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Are you ready for this awesome, jam-packed, resource-filled episode, John? Oh, of course, of course, of course. Before we begin, the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you the Make Math Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We'll be giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including John's book, the guest we have on our show today, his book, Daily Routines to Jumpstart Math Class, the middle school edition. Plus, you'll receive uh, special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. Yeah. You can get in on the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. Listening after July 31st, 2019? No sweat. We would never forget about you. We're always actively running giveaways, so make sure to check out the same link, makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about the current giveaway we have running. Don't miss out. Dive in to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. Without further ado, here is our chat with John San Giovanni. Well, hello there, John. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. How are you doing this mighty fine evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. John, could you help our listeners understand a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Take us a little bit on your kind of math education journey, if you will, please. Sure. So here's what I do right now. Currently, I'm a math supervisor in Howard County, Maryland, about halfway between Baltimore and Washington. We have 70-some schools in our school district, and I am fortunate enough to work with all of our teachers through professional development and curriculum development and what have you. But I think what we really want to talk about is my math story, I guess. I have a dichotomous background. I learned math in school, and I did math in the world as a student. And those two things did not always intersect. 
So, you know, I learned a lot of procedures and steps in my math classrooms, and I practiced the hell out of those things. Uh, there's my first curse word. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> let it flow. Let it flow. Keep them coming. So anyhow, no, I mean, just like many of us, I had a very proceduralized do the math and plug it out and figure your answer out. But in the real world, I love sports and I compared Carmelo's foul shooting percentages to Mark Aguirre's. And I guess my point is, is that I learned to do math in the world differently than I did in my classroom. And that actually inspired me to think about what it meant to teach math. And as I evolved and became more comfortable, I learned that we could do better things and apply and practice new strategies. Right, right. You know, it sounds very similar to uh, John and I talk about it all the time on the podcast. You know, we were very good at the game, you know, like learning about math, like we were told we were good at math. And I was happy with that. I know I was, you know, I thought, hey, I'll ride this as long as I can. I didn't have to think. And I just had to try to memorize as much as I could and eventually kind of fell short when I tried to actually, you know, get a degree. So that was, that was something that sort of rocked my world. I want to back up a second and uh, you're a math supervisor. I'm wondering your district is 70 something schools and my district is just over 70 schools. And I'm just curious, like, what does the day in the life of a math supervisor in your district look like or sound like? Well, it's, different every day, which is really great. I'm fortunate that I spend a lot of my time in classrooms, which I think is important for my work in helping teachers, not just in my district, but in other places throughout the country. So a day in itself could be a meeting with my math coaches, reading and learning together. It could be visiting a first grade math class and working with students. It could be visiting a team planning session and listening to challenges that they face. It really goes all over the place. There's ebbs and flows to the school year. So right now we're in the process of getting ready for uh, curriculum writing. We develop our own and make that available to the world for free. So we're looking to polish it this summer. So we're in that throw of getting ready for next school year, but day to day is different. And that's a good thing. But most of the time I spend my time in classrooms and that's where I'm most at home. But I want to go back to something you said, as a matter of fact, playing the game. I call it being a math sheep. <laughs> I think to be math sheep, right? And my motto is no more math sheep. And so I've been working hard to help our colleagues and other teachers think about how can we help students think and reason. That's great. That's great. I've never heard that phrase yet. So that's a new one, the math sheep. I really like it. I bet you that brings up some memories here. And, you know, being this, the making math moments a matter podcast, we have to ask you this question. If you think back to your experience, you've shared a little bit about that already, but if you think back more to your experience as a student or even as a teacher, what would be something that sticks out to you as a memorable moment from those math classes? Oh, well, I have three or four. Let me share my student ones first. I remember very vividly the first time I got to apply mathematics in a real situation, or at least it was to me, and we were working with ratio and proportion, and I want to say it was maybe seventh grade, and we took small comics and blew them up to be the size of poster board by gridding and, and creating these proportional representations, and I thought it was the coolest thing, but what was even more cool was later that day, or maybe that week, whatever it was, riding around our town, I saw these billboards, and it was the first time I recognized that I knew how they did it, and I knew that math is actually how they did it. So that's really a really poignant one for me. Another one is in high school. So this is a math phobia I got to tell everybody about. I don't like writing with pencils, which is ironic because, you know, math people do nothing but use pencils. Anyhow, my point <laughs> is I had a high school teacher. Like, it got to the point where it just it was really uncomfortable, and she let me 
use pen in math class. And there's two reasons I share this story. The first, that was maybe the first time I realized there really weren't math rules. Like I called them the math 10 commandments and they really didn't exist. That was the belief, but I was shattered. I realized you could do math with a pen. And the other cool thing that came about was that I actually saw my mistakes because I no longer tried to erase them. And the point is that you learn a lot from your mistakes But when you use a pencil and erase them, you don't actually see what you did. I was immediately, as soon as you said pen, that was the second portion was what I was jumping to right there was just this idea. Like I was the kid who, even with pencil, if I didn't know and feel confident that I knew how to get to the answer, I would just skip it. I was considered, you know, a good at math student based on those fake rules you just described. And yet... I still didn't have the confidence to like try something that I didn't have like 100% certainty that I knew I was going to be able to get to the end. It was like I was ashamed or, you know, just too scared to fail. And I think even just that idea of using a pen and sort of like, how awesome is it to celebrate those mistakes? And as teachers, I always think back to like how often I would have my lessons so carefully crafted that it would look as though I never made a mistake as a teacher. And that's another thing I felt like we just got to break away from that. It's like a bad habit is not showing students that we actually have to think through things in order to do interesting math anyway. That's really, really well said. And again, when I say dichotomous for me and my experiences, there was this perception of what math had to be. And then like I was doing math all the time at home and never really realized that the two needed to intersect. But your point about making mistakes, like we did that at home all the time, right? Playing games in the backyard and keeping score. And like, I don't know, you got over mistakes really quickly, but boy, they had a different lasting appeal, so to speak. In the classroom. Right. You did mention you wanted to share a few moments. Do you have a few more that you want to share? Yeah. This one probably sums it up for me the best in terms of, you know, those awakenings that you have, like your math awakenings or awakenings in your career. So I was teaching, um, it was third grade and we were working with multiplication and long story short, you know, I had a pretty traditional math education, yada, yada, yada. So we were working with areas and a third grade student said, did you see, do you notice that each time it has the same factors? Granted, she didn't say factors, (laughs) but each time the numbers are the same. They're squares. And I was like, oh, yeah, I see that. And she's like, is that what a square number is? And at that moment, I realized that's what a square number was. But here's my point. I never understood what square numbers were. I mean, don't get me wrong. I could find square roots. But I never knew why they were called squares. And at that very moment, I was like, is that why they're called cubes? (laughs) And, and, And I had this great math awakening teaching elementary school and realizing that I was fooled for a long time. Well, you know, what's crazy about that. And, you know, John and I have talked about this now that I am a K through 12 consultant, which sounds as though, you know, my role going back to you sharing about your day in the life of a math supervisor, it sounds like a very similar role, you know, where I'm in classrooms. Sometimes I'm in PLCs. Sometimes I'm working with coaches, sometimes all of those things. Right. And it wasn't until I came out of the secondary classroom and I started in this K to 12 journey where I've been spending so much time in K through eight. I started really exploring the nuts and bolts of, you know, addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. And when I was doing that exploration to prepare myself in order to deliver a workshop that I sort of made that connection myself, right? Like playing with arrays and doing all these things and going like, wow, this would have been really helpful for all of those kids that I had in my high school class that were always way behind. And I just never knew what to do with them. 
And it was like, I had that aha moment myself too, right? Going like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm like picturing that and something else too, like even just going back and just thinking about fractional language and how we use language like quarters for fourths. And it's like, you know, things that we could do to help make things more explicit for young children and even older children, right? Because obviously you were much older than a child when you realized that. And it's like, even though it's right in front of our face in mathematics, oftentimes without being explicit, we completely miss it. It's like, it just goes right over our head. Yeah, well said. And you know, there's one more thing I'd throw in there too. It is a similar awakening and, and it really goes back to elementary math and that's the distributive property. And, you know, memorizing properties with letters and not understanding them because then when you grow up, you have to memorize things like the FOIL method when you never understood them with just a distributive property. And I think that those are just prime examples of how we overlook the math. We can do the math, but that doesn't mean we always know the math. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12, setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Yeah. And you brought up the squares that reminded me of my experience teaching the Pythagorean theorem, you know, because I for years just taught it the way I learned it with a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And then, you know, when you actually it wasn't until only five, six years ago where I saw the visual representation. I think I'd seen the visual representation of the squares drawn off all of the three sides. In, in a book before, but I'm like, I don't know what, I'm just going to skip that and, and we're just going to do it right to the formula. But it wasn't until later that I was like, and you know, when you see the squares, you're like, that's why they're called square numbers. It was eye-opening to me. And again, as a secondary teacher, not knowing that till later. And, and then, you know, what a great way to explore the Pythagorean theorem is to look at that. Like also like, you know, with the Pythagorean theorem, it, it was mind-boggling to me that if you drew the triangles off the sides or like a regular hexagons off all the sides, those areas still add up. Like, and then when you explore that with kids, it was awesome to say like, well, why do we use squares then? Like, what is it about squares that makes it so much nicer to calculate those side lengths if we could use any shape? And so it's like a great exploration for sure there. So John, you know, I love the moments that you're sharing. And obviously you did a little bit of homework thinking about that, or maybe it's just, it's so fresh in your mind. I know for me, my moments like those are so fresh. I'm wondering if we could shift gears a little bit, because recently I had the pleasure of coming across one of your books from your series called Daily Routines to Jumpstart Math Class. And I was wondering if we could take a little bit of time before we dive into that 
specific book, but we're wondering like what sort of experiences in your career had an influence on you to take your passion and then find ways to actually share it with other educators? Like, was there anything that influenced you or inspired you? Like, why did you feel it was helpful to start writing books? Because I know these aren't your only books, but they are the ones that we'll be talking about tonight. It's hard to say there's any one moment. One thing that I've always lived by is take advantage of any opportunity that comes, say yes to everything. And I remember early in my career, I had opportunities to do some curriculum writing in our district. And I just love the process of diving into the math content and developing resources for our colleagues and then trying those things out in our classroom. And that led me to a special lady in my life, a former supervisor and friend, Kay Sammons, who got me involved in the math in our district and took me to national conferences and took me under her wing to speak in sessions. And just, I had opportunities to be exposed to learning about math. And I saw this great community that we have. And at that time, we weren't really connected as well as we are today, per se. But the point is, is that every time we went to a conference or a meeting, it was a revival. And those types of moments really reignite your passion for it. So I guess you know, those moments in my career, I don't know that there's any one that was like, this is math for me, but just, I don't know, being involved, creating, and then working with teachers to polish those creations and then seeing, and this is probably the most important part of all, but like all of the things that I've created for our district or whatever, you know, people buying books and using their classrooms. When you see kids, students using those things and having opportunities that we didn't have, that's the part that makes you come back for more. So I don't know how well that answers your question per se, but that's kind of how I got started. And it becomes, I don't know, a passion. Yeah, for sure. Like, and I think too, and you mentioned national conferences. So I'm assuming like, you know, probably NCTM, were there any other conferences that sort of like stuck out early for you? Yeah. I mean, it was NCTM. It was our state conferences, which is Maryland Council of Teachers and Mathematics. It was, there were a couple of districts that worked together that had a thing called quad counties in Maryland. It was just these little different math gatherings that really got me to connect with others and to learn about other perspectives and the ways that other approach math. So that was it. And then I've been really fortunate and blessed to have new opportunities and do other conferences. I, in fact, last week I was in Oklahoma doing the Oklahoma Council of Teachers of Mathematics conference. And I guess my point is, is that anytime I'm in those, I have an opportunity to sit in and hear what other people are doing. Yeah, those are the things that inspire me. Right. Like for me, I know very vividly it was the opportunity to go to our provincial math conference, the OAME conference. And I actually was asked to be a part of the planning committee because we were going to be bringing it locally. And I had never been to the conference and I actually didn't really know what the association was all about. And I just sort of said, sure, you know, just like you said, like the whole yes man sort of thing, right? And gave it a go and, you know, threw my hat in to do some help. And then we had an opportunity to actually go to the conference. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, for me, that was definitely a game changer. And it just totally reframed everything I thought about teaching. I mean, it took me a long time after that before I started to feel like I was actually changing my practice, but it was like a start to my belief shifts. I'm not sure if you could relate, like when you were at the beginning of your career, were you like us where we sort of came in and we were teaching the way we were taught and we weren't really feeling too successful about it? Or did you have a different experience? I had a slightly different experience in that, I mean, many of the ideas and ways that I approach math and that we believe in were 
buried deep down inside me, I needed something to unlock it and let it out because I had these beliefs about what meant to teach and learn math. And it wasn't until I was exposed to, no, you really don't have to do it that way. And there's research that supports new approaches and thinking and reasoning and so forth. And I guess for me, it was more about having the opportunity to unlock those and then to grow my ideas based on those exchanges. But I want to go back to one other thing you said real quickly, and you said you got involved with a program. I think that for many colleagues, we don't recognize there's so many opportunities out there. And for some of us, I mean, started as just volunteering at a conference and, you know, you work with somebody. And I guess my point is, is that our councils, our institutions, our organizations really want members to be involved, but it never feels like it's like my voice matters or that I can't. Does that make sense? Oh, totally, totally. I know that it can be a struggle to, I mean, with the internet, you would think that we could find things easily or like we would know that these things exist. But I mean, it's really hard. There's so much out there now, right? Not just obviously math, but just everything coming at us. And once you find them, it's sometimes people are feeling like, you know, how do I get into the quote unquote club, right? Or something like that. But I mean, I've experienced so many different conferences and it seems like all of the committees it's like they're always waiting with their arms open, even if maybe initially it doesn't seem that way just because you feel like, you know, you're just you and there's this big conference or this big committee. You're right. Like they're always looking for more help and more support and all of those things. So anyone who's listening, who is kind of sitting on the sidelines, take a look around, like see what's local. Or, and if there's nothing local for you, then, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to maybe start something and start forming a group from the grassroots. That's exactly right. But I do know that organizations are always looking for folks to be involved. So, um, yeah, anybody <laughs> listening, for sure, get involved. For sure. Small, you know, your state, your local conferences, whatever, it doesn't matter. John, we wanted to dive in and talk a little bit more deeply about the book series you're writing, Daily Routines, the Jumpstart Math Class. And, you know, jumpstarting math class makes me think, and, and a lot of us think about warm-ups, or we call them warm-ups. I guess we want to know, like, what is it about warm-ups that led you to write a whole book about it? Like, what are you seeing about warm-ups that you think is exceptional? Well, let me actually go back to something you said, or I said earlier about the Math 10 Commandments. And, and on those 10 Commandments were that I had to start math with a warm-up that reviewed things. And then I had to go over homework or I could do those in either order. I guess my point is that warm-ups have become very mundane and homework too, for that matter. And they became mini lessons. Like I hijacked my own class, my own lessons so many times because number three in the warm-up was a mini lesson because no one understood it or remembered it or, or homework. Number seven was just a jacked up problem that nobody could do or, you know, 20 people didn't do their homework. And I guess my point is, I know my point is that I wasted so much instructional time doing things I thought I had to do. In the same time, there were so many things I wanted to do and I didn't feel like I could. And one of those is developing number sense, right? And I'm going to get into that in just a second. But there's one other thing that I had challenges with when it comes to routines and, or excuse me, you know, traditional warmups and going over homework to start class. And that is, I told my students all the time that thinking and reasoning is what mattered, right? I was interested in how they did math more so than the answer that they got. Yet I started every math class with going over the answers. So I told them one thing, what I believed and valued, but I did another. So they had this real big disconnect about, you're telling me you care about our thinking, but you're only going over the answers. 
you know, we all have bad years or bad months or bad weeks. And I remember complaining about my students' number sense and they just didn't have number sense. And a teacher, a colleague called me out and said, so what are you doing about it? And what's funny about that is I was very angry with her, but it really stuck. Like, what was I doing about it? And number sense is a perfect excuse, right? It's not a unit in anybody's textbook. It's not a specific lesson. Number sense isn't on a test, but it's on every test. And so I started thinking about how do we restart? How do I restart conversation, thinking and reasoning in those first few minutes of math class? And I have a colleague, Heather Dyer, who helped me think about how we were going to go about reshaping the first few minutes of math class. So that was work in our district and it evolved into those books. That's awesome. And, you know, it aligns so well. We actually had a question all queued up. We were like feeling really good about it. You actually answered it, which is great, which is like why the traditional warm up doesn't work. And that's this idea that like homework tends to, I mean, your typical warm up, you know, your mind's on or whatever you want to call it. I used to call it a mind buster. It was like kids would do it, but it was like they knew it was coming every single day. There was nothing different about it. It was very like just a problem of some type and there wasn't much to it. And then when we got to the homework, it was the same deal. Like, you know, I planned for my 15 minutes of homework take up and then 45 minutes later, we would start the lesson, right? Like it would always turn out to balloon into this huge thing, we felt like this, like you said, like a rule that we had to do it. And when in reality, the kids who did the homework, they were the ones who had to sit there and they were actually listening, but they didn't need what I was giving them. And then the students who I was doing it for often were the ones who were disengaged immediately. So it was like just not helping anyone. So I I love the alignment there. And, and that was why we wanted to frame up that question. So John Orr, why don't you tee us up for our next question, my friend? Sure. You know, you have a number of routines outlined in the books that are all fabulous. I'm wondering if have you even know how many routines in total are spanned across those three books. Like maybe you can fire out an estimate if you're certain or uncertain. If I was to estimate, I would say about 45 or so across the three books. They play out a little bit differently, but it's important as teachers that we have a collection of routines for lots of reasons, right? And so even though there are middle school routines and high school routines and elementary, what have you, they could be changed out very easily to be used in a different grade level or grade band by changing the numbers or the approaches, strategies, what have you. But why it's important to have a lot is this. So we create math sheep, but sometimes we're math sheep too. And so if you do the same routine over and over and over again, it just becomes a different procedure. So it's important to keep the first few minutes of math dynamic. And when we're growing and engaging in number sense, you have to do it in lots of different ways, or it just becomes again, another procedure. So there's a little over 45, I guess I'd say, over all three of the books. Awesome. Now, I'm wondering, thinking about this, so there's 45. I'm wondering, are there some that are sort of like more of your go-to strategy? Like, do you have maybe a couple favorites that you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of background in? Maybe something that someone might be able to hear this. They might be driving to work right now and, you know, something they might go, wow, I'm inspired to at least check out or look into some of these routines. I'm sure if they Googled some of them, they may, you know, even pop up, they might have some sort of variation of a few of them. Are there any? Any that are sort of like up your sleeve that you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah, sure. Well, let me say one more thing about that too. There's different ones that have different memories that are favorites for different reasons, right? But number sense is such a complex idea 
that the routines, like, they do different things. So one of my favorite routines I call Picture Perfect, where we pose a picture to the students and ask a provocative question. You know, so they might see part of a fair, so we don't have to estimate how many people could ride it at one time. Or they might see a plate of brownies and know that one brownie is 125 calories. So how many might be on the plate? What I discovered in my own students that live upstairs in my house (laughs) and those that I taught, they don't see the math in the world around them. They're not constantly engaged in thinking about, like, I want my real kids, my flesh and blood, to walk into a room and say, there's about 50 people in here, right? I want them to see numbers and push back on them. And so Picture Perfect is one of those routines that starts and helps them start to see the math in their worlds. I like other routines like uh, ones, I mean, I'm not really creative when it comes to titles. One of them is called More or Less, and it's real simple. It's about estimating if something is more or less. If you've ever had a student do a calculation and not recognize that they're not even in the ballpark, this routine and a bunch of others are really good for you. And that is having students think about, let's do two and seven tenths times 14 and five tenths or something like that. We give kids or students some expressions and we have them determine if it's more or less than a certain benchmark. So in that case, the numbers I use might be, uh, you know, compared to 50 or something like that. More or less is one of my favorites because I remember vividly telling students to put their pencils down. We weren't doing math like that anymore. And so I come back to that because it's just a really cool routine for kids to estimate solutions and then compare them to a benchmark. One more for you. One of my favorites, if you've ever played $20,000 Pyramid or math headbands, or excuse me, not math headbands, but the game headbands where... One person's giving another person a clue about something and they guess it. Math Yapper is a version of that. I call it Math Yapper because, you know, well, you're sharing ideas through your Yapper. But we do it with vocabulary, but then we pivot and do it with numbers. And every time I do it with adults, in fact, I did it with adults this morning in another part of Maryland, they could give clues for vocabulary like nobody's business. But as soon as I changed the targets to be numbers, they couldn't communicate about numbers at all. Those are three of my more favorite, so to speak, routines. But um, I think the thing that I hope listener hears is that they're designed to get kids engaged in thinking and talking. Yeah, for sure. And we've talked a lot about that here on the podcast too. And we've referenced some very similar strategies, what we've called starting a math fight has been kind of like my go-to for the last year or so of like, how can I create more math discussion in my room at any time in the class? A lot of times it's at the beginning. And and I've used the headbands one that you referenced for sure with math, like any topic can be great, like put a number up, up on the kid's head and they have to ask questions. I've had high school students putting rational functions up on their head and they have to figure out the equations or even parabolas. That one's a good one. There's a couple more in our kind of math fight. You know, we use Andrew Stadel's estimation 180, which kind of goes along with like uh, the picture perfect one that you've referenced here, which uh, is, is always is always great because it's always like too high, too low. Those are some good ones. I've used one quite frequently called two truths and a lie, which is kind of that game, you know, the Tell two true statements about yourself and one lie uh, about yourself and everyone else has to figure out which one is the truth and which one's the lie. And you can easily mold that one into a math one. You could put an expression up on the board or a statement and have kids in three statements and they have to figure out which ones are truths and which ones are lies or have them. And the best part is you could have them come up with the truths and the lies and have them try to fool each other. So those are some good ones for sure, which always are trying to start a math fight in our rooms for sure. Yeah. And it's funny because I look back and, you know, I've got the middle school version of daily routines right next to me here. And I'm sitting there going like, which book did I see that one in? And I saw it 
in the middle school book there. You know, a lot of these other ones too have different names, but you can see how they sort of can be easily modified, right? And and you reference that in the book a number of times about the idea that like nothing's set in stone. I really liked that. You're not saying like these routines have to happen the exact same way that we've put them here, but you've done a great job giving people a great starting point. So I'm going to push you just a little bit further and say like, you've mentioned three here. Let's imagine that someone's at home and they're thinking about this and they're going, cool. Okay. So there's these three. I'm wondering, could you hook them up with like two more low hanging fruit routines that you think would be like, okay, I'm just getting started and I don't want to overwhelm myself. I can't learn all 20 and use them all tomorrow, obviously. But let's say I was like planning out five days in a row, what might be those last two routines? And I'm sure that some weeks you're going to repeat some in the same week. It doesn't have to be all unique, but just so that people have five in their back pocket before they head out for the evening. Yeah, no, that's good. And you made a really good point, right? We're not, it may be that I do one routine for a whole week before I shift and move to another routine. And thinking about where I am and how I want to modify it for the the best meet my students' needs is important. So two others that I like a lot is, and really pretty easy to run with. And that is one called Where's the Point? And I discovered that my students had very narrow perspectives about how numbers were related, especially through number lines. They believed that number lines had to end in with zero and something, zero and one, zero and two, 10, what have you. And so Where's the Point is a routine where students are given an empty number line with two endpoints. They could be decimals, fractions, whatever you might want to have. And you just place a point on that number line and ask them to make an argument, a math fight, as you say, which I love about what that value might be. And then right below that, like, so after you have that conversation about what it might be, then you offer another number line right below it with a similar missing location, but you change the endpoints in some way so that now they have to reason about how that value has changed based on the value of the endpoints changing. And I discovered that students didn't recognize Well, they didn't think dynamically about numbers. In fact, with integers, like every number line they ever worked with had a zero in the middle. Like zero was in the middle of every number line with integers and didn't realize that I could have a number line with negative 33 and negative 55 as endpoints. So where's the point is a really nice, easy place to start. I think one other one is called broken numbers, or there's a different one similar to it, and that's called express it, where students are given a value and they just have to decompose that value in a collection of different ways share it with others, and then you build a record of ways to decompose numbers. But here's something I discovered. Many students don't think as flexibly about numbers as we think they do. So this is a really bad example, but it's the best one I'll come up with for the listener right now. For the number 50, we'd like to think that they can break 50 apart in infinite number of ways. But if you were to poke at it, you're going to find that they really only think about it in four or five ways. And those ways are very limited, such as 25 and 25, 49 and one, et cetera. And I, I'm talking about whole numbers right now, but it applies to really any type of number. And the point with that routine, broken numbers or express it, we want students to play with, get dirty with numbers and look for patterns on how you break them apart. We know that when you do this, when you decompose numbers, frequently, you become a better computer in general. You have new strategies and see new relationships. Those are great ones. I got a question. I'm wondering about how you specifically set this up in your room. So when students come in, we're doing one of these to begin class. Are they at their desk? Are they standing? Are they in groups? Could you fill us in on what that might look like for those teachers that are like, oh, I want to try this in my room? Like, How is it set up? What do you think is optimal here? I think whatever's best for that individual is optimal. So 
And, and okay. I don't mean that to be coy. Like, so, you know, having anytime students are in proximity to each other so they can talk with each other, that's really important. Standing up, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily think that's a great idea, but it could work for some classrooms. So I do want to share this. Once students are trained on any one of the routines, those routines should become, well, routine. Students should know how to interact with it without a lot of prompting and what have you. Most Almost all the routines are designed so that they're not paper-pencil activities. There's intended to be observations, reasoning, and discussion activities. So I would want my classroom to be conducive to having students be able to talk to each other and share out. But however you set up your room should facilitate it pretty well. Yeah, no, for sure. And I appreciate you always. We use the word, it depends all the time on the show. As you know, there never is like the perfect scenario and, you know, every class is different. Every grade is different. Something I want to kind of go back to it. I really like how when you hear the word routine, you really, it could be anything. So like if someone's sitting at home and they're thinking about classroom routines, it's like, okay, it could be like routines of what we do in the class, but it could also just be like fun little, I'm using bunny ears here, activities that where you could fall into the activity trap. So I'm really happy that you got very explicit about this idea of number sense. And I know you've said it a number of times here, but just this idea that when we do things like number talks at the beginning of class, I think number talks are great if there's intention there. And I feel like the same is true here. It, like these routines are such a great way to be able to essentially, like I'm going to call it like almost like morph a number talk and do it with different approaches, so to speak, or different routines, you know, to especially help students as you get into the middle grades and into high school, you have to work a little harder. Like, I don't want to say that we're there to entertain students, but we do need to have their attention. And how do you gain the attention of anyone? Like think about adults, like adults are some of the hardest crowd. Imagine, and you know this, John, from doing workshops, like teachers are the hardest group to try to engage because they know a lot of stuff and it's like, you know, their time is valuable and you've got to make sure that you captivate them somehow. And through these routines, I feel like that's such a great entry point. And then to do the actual working with numbers, because I think number sense is like you've referenced, it's where it's at. And a lot of the rest of the curriculum, I feel like are put there with intentions to give you like the opportunity to play with more number sense. And I think we often miss that, right? When we rush to calculators and we're just proceduralizing everything, it's like, let's look at these topics, even the ones that you know kids are probably not going to use in their life ever again. Let's use those as a way to access the number sense and to build that fluency and, you know, to help students really see numbers a little bit differently. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. 
Yeah, you said so many things there that I want to respond to. I'm just going to pick a few. So number talks are fantastic, right? And number talks, especially, you know, designed as they are, serve very specific purposes, usually about computation or what have you. They're fantastic. There's so much more to number sense, though, right? And that idea of estimation and relationships and all these other things that we want to poke at and play with. And that's why I think these routines kind of balance number talks and similar things to engage students because anything, as great as it may be, 180 days in a row, it's going to get boring and folks are going to want to punch themselves in the face. And so we got to think about like, how do we engage our students? So you made a really great point about that. The other thing is number sense, it is the underlying thing in all of mathematics, but it's never one lesson. And another good point that you made was this notion that number sense is such a critical part of mathematics, but yet it's not a specific lesson. And the other thing is number sense is developed by lots of practice and play. And we don't always feel like we have the time to do that. And so regardless of the program or the tool, the textbook we use, what have you, these routines and things like number talks help complement those pieces to develop that number sense. I love how the approach you're taking is that, and it sounds like I'm hearing balance coming from you and everything you're discussing tonight, which is great. And it's not this idea that it's like, only use these daily routines. It's like, this is to complement some of the other great things that are going on out there. And I couldn't agree more, you know, finding those ways to just access number sense and give students the opportunity. I feel like once they feel like they have a command of number sense and they feel like flexible and fluent, students can do anything in math. You know, like once they get to that place where they just feel confident, we can ask them and we can do all kinds of crazy things because they know that they actually understand how things work. You know what I loved about that you have so many warm-ups to dive into in the book is that when I first started doing warm-ups in the class, I had the exact same, you know, I imagine the exact same thing. It's like, I got to get a bell ringer. I got to get them going right away. And, and I developed, you know, five different ones, but I did the same five. Like Mondays was always this, Tuesdays was always this, and it became too much of a rut. And I'm really looking forward to spicing it up a little bit more with the variety and to build the number sense skills up in a variety of ways. And I think what's most important is that you take them and you make them your own. These are ideas, these are seeds, but you take it from there and make it your own. And the other thing that I have to really stress is that routines really aren't designed to teach new content per se. It's more about revisiting ideas about number that students should own to some extent already, but they're not really, the word you use is fluent, but they're not necessarily fluent or comfortable. So that's another thing to keep in mind is this is a really good way to touch on number sense skills that haven't been seen for maybe a month or 10. I was wondering if we could switch gears here a little bit. And I'm wondering what you're working on now. Do you have a new work in place? Are you working on something new? Could you share a little bit of what's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, thanks. So I am currently working on a new project, which is called Five Actions for Productive Struggle. And that is a labor of love with some colleagues. But the thing is, is that productive struggle is so important to all of us. But we've had little training about how you grow it and deal with it. And for many of us, our experiences, our own math identities, tell us to stay away from struggle as much as possible. And so this project was critical for me to help me unpack my thinking about what does it mean to struggle? How do I prepare for it? 
How do I help students navigate it? And then how do I help students reflect on it in the lesson or, you know, during the week so that we can honor and value it and not just pass over it? Productive struggle is something that comes up in a lot of the workshops that John and I do. It's a part of our online workshop that we run as well as our online academy. And it's one of those things that as a teacher, I've said it before and I'll say it again that I would design my lessons hoping to make it as easy as possible for everyone. Like I thought the key to being a good math teacher was to take all of the struggle away. And it was almost like coddle everyone so that every student felt, and it was all out of the goodness of my heart. Like I was trying because I want them to feel successful, but in doing so, I actually got the opposite, right? It's just like when you coddle your children and they, you know, they don't learn how to like survive in the real world because, you know, we're doing everything for them. It's like, we've got to put them into that struggle. So I'm really looking forward forward to uh, diving into that when that comes available. Maybe I missed it. I, maybe you said it. Maybe you, I didn't. Do you have an anticipated launch date for that book? Yeah, it should be out next winter, spring. I, I think the target is March, April 2020. But at the moment, with everything else going on, I'm a little behind. We won't tell my editor that. But uh, yeah, you just summed it up. I designed lessons so that I would be successful and didn't recognize that success came from their struggle. And so... Maybe we have to rethink that. John, I'm wondering where we could find more about you. Is there a place that our listeners could go and read more about you? Or do you have a social media that we could follow? Could you uh, share us a little bit about that? I should probably have a website and all these other great things available to everybody. But I'm so busy in it that I haven't taken the time to curate it and put it in one place. I'm on Twitter at John San Giovanni. I'll spell that for you later. But we've um, already got your Twitter handle. Don't. We? But just for those listening, just for those listening, we will link it up in the show notes, though. Sweet, thanks. So, but up there, I don't really. It's not that I don't want to say much. I just listen and grow my own thinking that way. You know, works through Heinemann and Corwin Press. You can read more about my work there. And then I'm fortunate enough to speak at most conferences and things like that. So hopefully, I'll see folks in those capacities. There's a web page place. In design, but it's going to take a little while because uh, doing other things like everybody else, right? Yeah. Hey, well, listen, you know, John and I have a website, but something we don't have is a book. And it's like, you know, when you say yes to one thing, you got to say no to something else. And right, we would love to be able to take some time and actually, you know, sit down and try to put a book together, my mom and dad would probably say like, you're crazy, right? You know, I've never been, uh, never been one for something like that, but you know, we totally get it that you've got a lot of things going on. And I think the beauty is, is that you are still sharing with the world. So maybe not through the website right now, but through the print form, which I think is great. So we want to really thank you for taking the time to join us tonight here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And actually, for those listening, we're actually going to be running a book giveaway. So your book is one of the books we'll be giving away here on Daily Routine. So that will be coming in and we'll have some more information right after we hang up with you here, John, for folks to get their names in the hat so that they can get their hands on a fresh copy. Nice. That's great. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot, John, for joining us here. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Hey, thanks again for having me. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening. Investing in ourselves pays dividends for our kids. Thanks. 
All right, all right. We want to thank John again for spending some time with us to share his insights, not only about daily routines, but just mathematics class in general. It was awesome. And I hope you folks in the Math Moment Maker community felt like you had some big takeaways just like we did. As always, how will you reflect on what you've heard from this episode? Have you written ideas down, drawn a sketch note, sent out a tweet? called a colleague, be sure to engage in some form of reflection to ensure that the learning sticks. Don't forget about the Math Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We're giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including John's book, Daily Routines to Jumpstart Math Class, the middle school edition. Plus, you'll receive special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. You can get in on this giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. If you're listening to this after July 31st, 2019, no sweat at all. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn more about our current giveaway that we have running. That is makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. Don't miss out. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweet us your biggest takeaway tagging at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 31. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 31. We release a new episode every Monday morning. Keep an eye out for our next episode. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training. Get your planning workbook. 
Um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.